Romans 15, and we'll begin reading at verse 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we begin to look at the closing or the epilogue of this great epistle of Paul to the Romans. Paul has set forth the nature of the gospel from verse 16 of chapter 1 all the way up to the end of chapter 11, and he has set forth the implications of the gospel from 12.1 over to verse 13 of chapter 15, which we looked at last week. And then, beginning at verse 14, this first verse we read today, he turns to address the Roman Christians on a more personal level as he closes out the letter. And so from verse 14 on to the end of Romans, which is really a pretty long ending to a letter, uh, about a a chapter and a half or a little more than a chapter and a half, From 14 on to the end, we have some personal words, some encouragements, some exhortations, some discussion about his travel plans, some requests for prayer, some individual greetings. He he takes time. Think of what it would be like to have yourself addressed personally in the greatest letter ever written. And yet there are some individual personal greetings. toward people who are in the church there at Rome that Paul didn't know. So these are the things that uh, fill up this um, closing or epilogue of Romans. So the first thing of a personal note that Paul wants to say to these Roman Christians as he closes the letter um, is found in verse 14. And it's something surprising. He says, "...concerning you, my brethren..." I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Paul talks about the goodness of the Roman Christians. And he says that they're full of it. They're full of goodness. We know that the the lost world talks way too glibly about goodness. Uh, You go to a funeral some ungodly person, and uh, uh, I, I was at a funeral one time where the the man was so cantankerous that even his children, I think maybe one of his children, attended the funeral. But yet, uh, the preacher got up and talked to what a, what a good man he was and how he was in heaven and so on. So that we know that uh, the world uses the term goodness. They don't know what the term goodness means. Uh, the rich young ruler was like that. 
Remember, he came to Jesus and he, he said, Good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it was obvious that he had no idea what real goodness is. He was too, talking about it too much and too lightly. And he didn't realize what a sinner he was. And that's why the Lord gave that answer that he did. He said, why, why do you talk to me about what's good? There's none good. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Well, he wasn't saying I'm not God or I'm not good. He's saying you need to stop and think this thing over. You don't have any idea what you're saying. And uh, really, it's not until the Holy Spirit begins to open your eyes that you realize what goodness is and you realize that you're not good. And so um, the word goodness is very lightly used. But now I've got to remind you, Paul was not part of the world. He, he, was, he was a Christian. But even for Christians, and particularly new Christians, um, oftentimes new Christians don't have any idea <clears throat> really um, how deeply sin is rooted in their lives and how weak they really are and how much uh, still needs to be dredged out. And... Uh, how much they need still to have sin exposed and put to death. You think of Peter. You know, Peter knew the Lord. Jesus said, you're clean. He was already clean. Uh, But um, he did not realize how weak he was. And he said, though all deny you, I won't deny you. He was very sincere in that. But he had not yet had exposed to him even though he had a little bit exposed to him. Remember, he said he had jumped into the sea. He said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He'd had a glimpse, but he didn't know how bad it was. Because he was very sincere whenever he said, I, though all deny you, I won't. He was very sincere about that, but he didn't realize how weak he was and how much self-sufficiency there was. And so when we become Christians, we still have we still don't have a clear enough idea of of how deep the sin problem goes, even though we've been converted. And after you've been a Christian for a while, usually what happens is God begins to show you your weakness and through failings, through maybe through a co-worker or through a difficult child or through your spouse or whatever, He begins to reveal to you more and more just how much territory there is left to be taken and just how much sin still remains in your life. And uh, it's a a very painful experience to say the least. You had no idea how selfish you were. You had no idea how self-centered you were. You had no idea how unbelieving you were. I mean, God just begins to allow that to break us down and to do good for us in the end, but it is a revelation, and it's miserable, and uh, death to self is very painful, and that's an ongoing process throughout our lives. But it's right here that it's easy to get off track, <clears throat> and we begin to focus our attention to, uh, inward and concentrate on how much sin there is still left, how sinful, how bad we are, how much sin we still have, and so on. I've been to conferences where one speaker after another 
got up and preached about how vile and wretched Christians are, how much sin there still is. And uh, this is particularly true of uh, so-called reformed circles. I picked up a booklet um, in a reformed Baptist church in a different different city, and I just want to read you some quotes from it. Um, This is talking about the sinfulness of the Christian. The writer says, This moan, O wretched man that I am, expresses the normal experience of the Christian. And any Christian who does not so moan is in an abnormal and unhealthy state spiritually. The man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ or so ignorant of the teaching of Scripture or so deceived about his actual condition that he knows not the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure of his own life. The one who bows to the solemn and searching teaching of God's Word cannot fail to discover what a vile wretch he is. Talking about Christians now. The one who is truly in communion with Christ will emit this groan and emit it daily and hourly. So here's a Christian truly in communion with Christ and he's supposed to be daily and hourly groaning about what a wretched, miserable wretch he is. And then he quotes from John Bradford who was a godly man that lived back um, in the days of the Puritans, he um, he was martyred under um, Bloody Mary, and he's writing a letter to a fellow prisoner. Now, this is a good man, but this is the way he answered the letter: <clears throat> the sinful John Bradford, a very painted hypocrite, the most miserable, hard-hearted, and unthankful sinner. John Bradford. Doesn't that make you want to be a Christian? (laughs) The very painted hypocrite, the most miserable, hard-hearted, and unthankful sinner. And then he ends off the booklet. He says, May God vouchsafe to both writer and reader such a view of their own depravity and unworthiness that they may indeed grovel in the dust before Him. Now let's compare that with our text. I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. And does it strike you as at least a little different emphasis? It's a little bit different emphasis, isn't it? What is it? Well, the one is a perpetual focus daily, he says, and hourly on how much sin still remains in the Christian. And you, and a lot of what he's saying is true. I mean, if you begin to look inside and you spend your time looking inside, you can dig up. You can't think of bad enough things to say about what you're like apart from the work of Christ. And it is a revelation. We need to have that revelation. But that's not where the Bible focuses your attention if you're a Christian. The difference is is that the Bible focuses our attention as Christians not on 
how much is left to be done, but on what has been done. And it is miraculous and wonderful what has been done if you're a Christian. It's glorious. And that's the emphasis of the New Testament and it's the emphasis of Romans. You see it in the in the very fundamental foundational word that the Bible uses for Christians. What is it? Vile, wretched sinners. What is the word? Saints. Holy ones. Isn't that something? Holy ones. Now that's a different thing than saying I'm a painted hypocrite, I'm a vile wretch. No, if you're a Christian, you are a holy one. Something big, something incredible has happened in the heart of the weakest Christian. You think of that thief on the cross, for example. He didn't have very long to bear fruit. He just had a few minutes. But think of what he's doing. He he rebukes the other thief and he says, we deserve this. That's a miracle right there. If you ever see that you deserve what you're getting. I mean, I've gone and visited people in prison. I Almost never do you find one who deserves to be there. They're all framed. They're all this, that. It's everybody else's fault. Unless you find a real Christian, that's the only time. And so that thief on the cross already, he just by his sentence, you know, we deserve this punishment. He did. This man hasn't done anything. Just in that sentence, he, he manifests a miracle. And when he says, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom, there was more true righteousness in that prayer <clears throat> than in all the prayers that those Pharisees were praying down at the temple. All of them put together. There was more true righteousness in his prayer because it was honest and he recognized his sin and his need. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And not only that, but think of that you want to think of the miracle. He recognized Christ as a king and as the king at a time when he looked the most not like a king of any time that had ever been. And his disciples who had been with him all this time had fled. They were at a distance. God had done a miracle in his heart. Now, all that the New Testament is doing is say, yeah, God, as you become a Christian, God begins to show you remaining sin. He begins to show you how deep the need is. That's true. But He never does that to leave you there. He does it to direct you back and show you again what Christ has done in your life. And that's a glorious thing. And Paul has that. He starts out Romans. Uh, Back in chapter 1, let me read some of these to you. He starts out saying, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. So they're beloved. He's saying God loves you in a special way, and you're a holy one. And he he says, I thank God for you all the time. I'm thanking God for you. That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. When you get over to chapter 6, he's talking about all Christians. And he talks about how we have died to sin and we've been made alive to God. And he says we've been raised up to walk in newness of life. 
And as you go down, he says, do not go on, verse 13 of chapter 6, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as, unri- as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. If you're a Christian, you're alive from the dead. And it, you're just as alive from the dead now as you were when you first became a Christian. You know, when you first become a Christian, you feel new and you feel alive, but you're just that much alive from the dead now. You've died to sin. you passed out of that realm. You're alive in a new realm. And God, for the first time, has put something in you that you didn't have before. He's put a love for Himself. He's written His law on your heart. He's made you a new creation. And so... Paul talks about them being holy and beloved. He talks about how they've been raised up from the dead to walk in newness of life. And then uh, he talks about uh, a little later in chapter 6. He says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you used to be, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then a little later he says, Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your fruit resulting in holiness and the outcome eternal life. So, and a little later in chapter 7 he says, When we were in the flesh... These sinful passions were aroused by the law and they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But he says, now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Holy Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So, And this is the same language that the Lord Jesus used. He sees Nathaniel coming. What's he say? Behold, a true Israelite in whom is a vile, wretched, painted hypocrite, deceitful heart. <laughs> he doesn't say that. In whom is no guile. He said, and you have Stephen. He was a good man, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Well, we can think of people in our lives, you could say that, that he was a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Just goodness that God has put in the person. And of course, if you dug down, you could find all kinds of failings. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that. We're saying that th- stop, focus your attention on what Christ has done for you. The Lord Jesus talks about a man who with an honest and good heart brings forth fruit with perseverance. He keeps on. An honest and good heart. That's a believer. In another place, he talks about the good man who out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what's good. And he says, either make the tree good and the fruit good or the tree corrupt and the fruit corrupt. That's a new creation. That's regeneration. We're talking about that on Tuesday nights, Lord willing. But this is the emphasis of the Bible. And we need to be remind ourselves that God... The Bible says God exalts over us with shouts of joy. Isn't that hard to imagine? But He exalts over His children with shouts of joy and rejoices over us. Now, notice here in verse 14, Paul is applying this not to himself in this case, but to other Christians. He says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced 
that you yourselves are full of goodness. So here, uh, Paul had never met most of these Romans. He had heard good things about them, true enough. But you don't get the feeling that he's full of suspicion about the Roman Christian. It's not an idea in his mind. He doesn't approach those Christians, you know, over there in Rome. Well, probably they're not even converted. You know, they're probably a bunch of hypocrites. That's not the way he, he thinks of the Christians at Rome. It's not guilty until proven innocent. His attitude is God's done something wonderful up there in the church of Rome. And so he's commending them and encouraging them. And uh, um, wants to believe, ready to believe the best about them. Beloved, we have this problem with one another, don't we? Because we forget how great a miracle it is that God has done. And we get used to one another. I mean, it's a great miracle when a guy says, I want to follow God. That's a great miracle. It's a great miracle when somebody with tears confesses honestly how weak they are. That's a miracle. That's a reason to rejoice. And it has to do with taking that attitude toward one another. I had a pastor friend a number of years ago who was uh, into a, a teaching called Idols of the Heart teaching. There's a lot of good about it. What you try to do when you counsel someone is you try to pick out what what's the big problem in their heart. So... Let's suppose um, your wife is having trouble being impatient with the children. And so you're, you try to dig in and see, well, what's the idol? Or maybe you've made an idol out of your reputation. You want everybody to like you, think of you as a great mom. And so you get frustrated with the kids and you respond wrongly. You've got an idol there of want, wanting people to think you're a great mom. Well, there may be some truth to some of those things, and we have, and there is, there is truth to them, and we need to repent of those things and have them broken. But you see what's happening in the counseling: you're taking a Christian, you're directing them inward and digging around, trying to find the idol. And when he began to realize some of these things that we're talking about here, he began to counsel his wife a little differently. She's all, she's a true believer. She's she failed with the kids. And instead of saying, well, honey, we've got to deal with this idol. Let's dig this thing out. you know. Instead, instead, he says, you know what? Think of this. A couple of years ago, this wouldn't even have bothered you. And now you're wanting to be holy. You want, you want to have victory. And you, want to be a, you want to please God in this. That's a miracle. Think of what God's done in your heart. And we need that. We need, to be, we need to be directed to the wonderful thing that God has done that you even want to please Him in this. And He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You need to hear that too. And you need to hear that you're not the one. It's God who works in you both to will and to do. Now you're having the will, you're wanting to, but you haven't gotten to the to do yet. God has to work that in you too. He's got to enable you. And help you. And so you see, it's a difference of direction in the way you think about what's going on and the way you help one another. Well, 
It has to do with pointing one another to Christ, and it has to do with highly valuing one another for the wonderful things that God has done and is doing in the other person's life. So, Paul tells these Roman Christians that he's convinced that they're full of goodness. And he goes on, he says, he's convinced also that they're filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Notice the, the kind of knowledge that matters. He's not talking about doctrinal theory. Nothing wrong with that. But we want to get past just hearing information and accepting it as information and get it into our lives enough that we can admonish one another, that we care enough about one another to apply it. Apply it in our own lives and apply it to one another. And so when we see somebody struggling or floundering, we care enough that we try to help them and even sometimes rebuke them or sometimes encourage them. Some, sometimes some, some word that will... Help them. And so Paul says, I'm convinced that you don't just have theoretical knowledge. You've it's begun to change your lives and make you so you can help other people and admonish other, other Christians. So that's the kind of knowledge we want, the knowledge of God and of the truth that really helps others. So the question comes up, why does Paul say this in verse 14? What prompts this? And the answer comes out in part in verses 15 and 16. He says, I'm convinced that you're full of goodness and full of knowledge, but, verse 15, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that has been given to me from God. Now, you've got to remember, and we don't think about this, but Paul had never been to Rome before. He'd never been in that church. And he wasn't the one that started that church that God used to lay the foundation. Remember, with the Corinthians, Paul, he says, I, as a wise master building master builder, laid the foundation. So he had a right to, I mean, he could come in there to the Corinthians and really lay it on them. And he said a lot of strong things to the Corinthians to try to help them. But with the Romans, he'd never even met them before, and he's saying a lot of the stuff that he says in, in this, I mean, he, page after page after page. The longest presentation and the fullest presentation of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. And so, at this point, the Romans are sitting there thinking, what do you think, we're a bunch of dummies? You know, we don't know anything. <laughs> You've gone into the whole gospel from beginning to end. Or they could think that. And so he says to them, I'm, I'm convinced that you're full of knowledge. It's not like I think that you people don't know anything, but I want to stir you up. I want to remind you because of the grace given to me. What's he talking about? Well, he's made reference to this twice already in Romans. And the grace given to him was that he was an apostle. He says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So he says the, when Paul talks about the grace he'd received, he didn't just mean that God had saved him, but the grace has to do with the gifts that he's given you, the calling that he's given you. And he does it again in chapter 12. He says, I say through the grace given to me, 
to every man among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Well, that's getting pretty personal with people you've never even met. But his, he can say it through the grace given to him because he was an apostle. And not only was he an apostle, he was an apostle to who? The Gentiles. And the Roman church was mostly Gentiles. He says, I want to have, back in chapter 1, he says, I want to have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. It's a mostly Gentile church. And so he's saying, look, I've never met you, and I don't want you to get the idea that I think you don't know anything, but I've written boldly to you like this, and a big epistle like this, because... As the apostle to the Gentiles, I have a burden for you. And I have a right to speak to you because Christ has commissioned me. So that's the meaning here. Uh, and that's the flow. <clears throat> so, I want to say just a little bit then about verse 16. And then we'll be done. This is another amazing verse. Paul says, I want to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now listen to this. Ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked about this before uh, concerning the priestly... uh, Uh, order in the Old Testament, how that it's changed when you come to the New Testament to the reality. It's not the shadows anymore, it's the reality. And the reality, aside from the priestly work of Christ who offers the one true sacrifice, there is an analogy to the Christian that we're the true Levites, we're the true priests, and and we're the true temple. The church is the true temple and Christians offer up, Peter says, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we've taken the place of the Levites and we're offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. Hebrews talks about offering up the sacrifice of praise. And it's costly sometimes to praise God in some situations. It costs you. And you offer that up. When you're praising God in a hard time, that's a... That is true worship. That's a sacrifice that God is pleased with when somebody is doing that. They're in the middle of trials and difficulties and they keep on praising God. That's a fragrant aroma to God. So here we are. We're spiritual priests. The church, the body, the, the whole body of believers is the temple. We're offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We offer up the sacrifice of praise. The, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name, it says. But Paul changes the picture a little bit here. And he says, my work as a minister of Christ is a priestly work, and I'm offering up not praises, but people. I'm offering up the Gentiles to God and they're acceptable to Him and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's this mean? Well, it's a wonderful thing. You can have a part in the salvation of other people. Maybe your own children. 
Think of, think of taking your, your children. God's given you your children and you pour in your heart, your prayers. You're teaching them about the Lord and God by His grace saves one of these children and you can offer them up to God as a sacrifice, a, a fragrant sacrifice to God. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying all of those hardships he went through, his back being lacerated and shipwrecked out on the Mediterranean and all of that, He's doing all that for the sake of the elect. And he says that they, that they also might obtain the salvation that's in Christ. And in general, it was Gentiles that he was sent to. And so as they're saved one by one and groups and churches are started, he's giving them back to God, even though God's the one that saved them. But isn't this a wonderful thing? You can offer that person back to God. I remember... Uh, Paul in Thessalonians, he says, our, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. He's talking about people, converts. I felt a little of this. It's been 20 or 30 years ago. That some, of the, some of the college girls that have been converted came with Mona down to St. Louis to some special meetings at that we were involved in down there. And when they walked through the room, they walked through the door, and I saw them for the first time. These are believers. They've been saved. God has saved them. Who, Paul says, who is our crown and joy, our exaltation? It's these people that God has saved through the, through the message of the gospel. And I had a little feel for what he was talking about. And we can have input in other people's lives, and like I said, even our own children, and just the joy. And this is similar type thing here. He's saying, I'm taking these Gentiles and offering them up back to God, people, bodies, and souls. Now, think about this. In chapter 12, he said something like this, didn't he? He says, "I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So here they are as Christians, you're presenting yourself to God, body and soul, as a living sacrifice. Well, Paul uses the same language here. He says, I'm presenting them to God as a living sacrifice. Now, just like in the Old Testament, a sac- you didn't just give anything to God. You had to have a sacrifice that had been set apart and made holy. And he says here in verse 16 that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we were just talking about earlier. The Holy Spirit has done a work in the heart of every every believer. These Gentiles are no longer unclean. They're holy. They're saints. The Holy Spirit has miraculously changed them and set them apart. And so from the very beginning of your Christian life, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're set apart. God has His hand on you. Everything has changed. The old life has been put to death and there's been a new life raised up. And so He's taking these new believers, new Christians, new creations, and offering them up to God in praise. So it's quite a quite a a view that Paul had of his ministry, isn't it? 
And I'm sure that helped him many times when he was, when he was being persecuted or stoned or whatever, to, to think that he's getting to offer up people to God, lots of people. In his case, there were a lot of, I mean, think of whole churches. And he could look back, you know, and of course he's carrying this burden of all, he says, the burden that comes upon me daily, concern for all the churches. He's concerned for those new Christians. And you, you read in his letters about how he's burdened and he's praying and he's thinking he can't stand it any longer. He sends somebody to check on this or that church. But in his mind, what he's doing is he's offering them up to God as a acceptable sacrifice sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Well, um, Lord willing, we'll go on next time uh, with verse 17 and following. <clears throat> Paul begins to talk more about his ministry and uh, what he's hoping to do, what, what his particular calling is, and uh, why it is that it's been so long that he's wanted to come to Rome and hasn't been able to and so on. So, may the Lord help us.